0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning. Thank you very much for getting up on this freezing cold morning. Uh, I'm, enormously, I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. I'm enormously grateful to Unilever for hosting this breakfast, in addition to being one of the sponsors of the breakfast, along with Eon and Prospect and our not-for-profit partner, Do the Green Thing. Uh, what Editorial Intelligence likes to do is be a hub for argument and discussion. We run something of an informal club. We broadcast and podcast highlights from these events for people who can't be here in person. If any of you feel suddenly shy and do not want to be podcast, don't ask a question. And if you do not want to be broadcast, move very far away from anything resembling a camera. But otherwise, you are on the record. Um, I would just like to thank the panel and the sponsors, and James Crabtree is going to guide you through this morning's wonderfully apposite and broad-ranging topics. So, without further ado, James Crabtree, thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, My name is James Crabtree. I'm the managing editor of Prospect magazine, a copy of which should be on your seats and whose last edition was a special about um, the road to Copenhagen. Um, I'll just keep this relatively brief and a few moments of housekeeping Uh, could you all please turn off your mobile phones, um, unless you specifically want to Twitter, in which case uh, turn them on to silent. Um, We're going to run through this morning until about quarter to ten. I'll introduce for a few minutes then we'll run through the panel who are going to speak for about five minutes each and then we'll have a good time for question and discussion. So let me just try and set the scene briefly. Um, uh, There was a time I think when the the, the title of this what's the climate on climate change would have seemed like an obscure topic but over the last week we've seen that leaked emails from a set of obscure professors from a British University can gather almost as much uh, attention as leaked emails from uh, the office of the Prime Minister Um, uh, from which I think if Professor Anthony Giddens who couldn't join us this morning but was on the panel whose book The Politics of Climate Change would deduce that the politics of climate change is now a, a mainstream phenomenon and as we get ready for uh, the Copenhagen summit, a summit that everyone is talking about but almost nobody understands with the exception of the people of this panel. Um, it's only going to get more so. We have an odd situation where the global recession um, has bought us a little bit of time. Um, uh, a fact that I didn't know that David King, the former uh, chief government chief scientific officer, said that um, the recession will lower uh, projected global carbon emissions um, on our business as usual scenario to 2020 by about 15%. Nonetheless, despite the the rearing of a bit of climate change skepticism over these leaked emails, the science trots on, and um, there was a new report out yesterday on the the, the continuing rise in in carbon uh, equivalents in the atmosphere. Now, within that, we have a, a range of maybe three issues that we can focus on this morning which um, will partly be discussed at Copenhagen but partly concern all of you in the audience. Firstly, what do you do about consumers and how do you get consumers to change their behavior on climate change? Secondly, how do governments respond and what sort of regulation should they be trying to introduce? And thirdly, uh, and particularly difficult in an environment where there's not much money to go around, how can you Uh, invest in the type of technology that you need to solve climate change and particularly send that technology from the rich world to the developing world Um, and how does all that get wrapped up in uh, a Copenhagen process which the press uh, already seems to have written off as a failure. So let me run down our panel. I'll I'll give each of them their uh, introduction when they speak but just so you know who they are uh, in order. First up we're going to have Jesse from E3G uh, then Gavin Neath from our hosts at Unilever, uh, then Rosie Boycott, then John Crackett from E.ON, and finally, but not last, Professor Graciela uh who's come over all the way from the States. So I'll start with uh, with Jessie from, uh, from E3G, which stands for Third Generation Environmentalism, which is an environmental NGO, which she describes as the diplomats of the climate change NGOs, Um, and on which she leads on European policy. And so Jessie's going to kick us off for five minutes on what's gone wrong with Copenhagen.
2: Well, thank you, yes. So I get to open, I get to be provocative. Um, I'm going to say two things. First, what's gone wrong with Copenhagen? And then, if I can stay within my five minutes, do we have good sound? Um, A couple of words on what I think is happening outside Copenhagen, which in many ways is more important. What's gone wrong? I think we went into Copenhagen... In many cases, with the that's very, sorry, that's now got a boom back on it. Okay, uh, with the wrong ambitions. I think many of the negotiating teams with whom I spend most of my waking hours at the moment have come to this with um, a competitive approach to one another: who will get what out of this negotiation? If you read the newspaper headlines at the moment, you would frankly think we were discussing the Cold War. Everybody is trying to determine whose policies, whose positions, which gestures are secretive, which are serious negotiating positions. It's deeply aggressive. This isn't actually accurate to the problem that we're trying to negotiate. We're negotiating a multipolar mutual security problem. By definition, the most interdependent problem the world has faced. We can all lose out this deal. Nobody, nobody can win on their own. That fundamental dynamic has been lacking from the negotiations so far. To be absolutely clear, I think it has not yet been understood by many of the major players that there is no credible alternative to a legally binding global agreement on climate change. Proposals like those from the US for bottom-up pledges from individual countries simply will fail to get us to where we need to be. That is the 2 degrees centigrade average global temperature rise target. They will fail to get us there because they do not allow governments to then tackle their domestic resistant interest groups. I think we need a change in the institutional approach and the political framing. I don't think we're going to get this in the next two weeks before we go into Copenhagen in December. But we all now know that we will have an ongoing negotiation for something in the field of three to six months. And anyhow, the Copenhagen Agreement will almost certainly be the first of many. The negotiation mode we're dealing with, the policy regime which it's trying to specify, are still essentially based on the Kyoto Protocol. And the Kyoto Protocol was written by environment ministers. It was written before it was fully understood the extent to which climate change is a security and a prosperity challenge way beyond the traditional remit of environmental challenge. It's still being driven by environment ministers. And my greatest frustration, I think, at the moment... Is that environment ministers don't have the political muscle, they don't really have the intellectual resources, and they certainly don't have the financial resources to tackle the scale of the problem. This negotiation should actually be being run by energy ministers. We will not get a deal on climate change if we cannot guarantee every country's energy security. Any politician anywhere in the world will put keeping the lights on ahead of long term climate security. We need the energy ministers. We clearly need also the military. These are the community within our governments, within our societies, who are best at talking about forecasting risk. These are the communities who are best at rapid deployment and at crisis management. We clearly need the ministers of economics, and we need heads of state and government. This is why there has been such pressure and excitement from NGOs about whether heads will actually attend the Copenhagen negotiations. It's not simply because it's symbolically important they are there, it's because the level of the problem and the kinds of decisions which are playing off different political priorities take place at heads level, not at the level of the environment ministers. In terms of political framing, I think we've also had a series of problems around the focus on fairness, on burden sharing within negotiations. Clearly the rich world has caused this problem. It is our past emissions which have set the world on a climate change path. Equally clearly, we all know that it is the future emissions of China and India that will take us over the 2 degrees centigrade peak. But everybody's still arguing their relative case, and this takes me back to the point about this is not the Cold War. So Africa's too poor to make commitments. Yes, the US then argues frankly that it's too rich. We've got India arguing that it's too undeveloped. We've got the Australians arguing they're too hot. We've got the Chinese arguing that they have done things about their population, they have done their share. We've got the Russians arguing that they have contributed their forests. Yes. How far does that get us? I think perhaps actually the paradigm we're looking for here is much closer to truth and reconciliation. The person we really need at Copenhagen is Desmond Tutu. We need somebody who is used to saying, let's put the past behind us and let's manage our societies to avoid future harm. So I think that's what's going wrong with Copenhagen and I think that is now pretty clear amongst the negotiating communities and I'm actually quite optimistic over the next six months. More broadly, behind the formal negotiation process, there is a sea change in the quality of the debate. And that is a debate about the economy and climate change and that is the fundamental debate that will take us to the solutions. A debate on competitiveness, relative competitiveness of the EU, the US, China. A debate on the costs and on technology leadership and investment in technology deployment. During last year's climate package negotiations in the European Union, competitiveness was a term which was always used to mean relative burdens. Huge debate around carbon leakage. If Europe takes on carbon commitments that are ahead of the rest of the world, we will carry the burden, our industries will carry the burden, and may choose to relocate outside Europe. That has changed. When we talk about competitiveness now in the climate debates and more broadly, I think, I mean, throughout the European businesses that I work with, we're starting to talk about staying ahead. This is a race to be ahead. So Siemens announced last month that their profits this year are 19 billion from their green technology programs. They expect those profits to go up to 21 billion next year and exponentially thereafter. China and the U.S. last week signed an agreement on standards for electric cars I have never seen such a frisson of anger and frustration and fear in Brussels. Because Brussels has been trying to set the standards for electric cars for years. Now, the rest of the world has set them for us. Europe is used to being the world's standard setter. So we have come into a problem here of who will stay ahead. That takes me to an argument that... I'd like to pursue through the rest of this debate, which is about how Europe can view its own self-interest on climate change. The European Commission suggests that if we go to 20% of renewable technologies by 2020, that will create 2.8 million new jobs and a net increase in GDP. Oil and gas, the savings we can achieve by investing less in oil and gas and more in clean energy. The IEA suggests that given the supply side, investments that are not currently being made in oil and gas, we're likely with economic recovery to go back up to $140 a barrel. If we do that, the EU, the US and Japan alone will be spending something in the range of $800 billion a year on oil and gas imports from the Middle East. That's the size of our stimulus packages. That is an immense sum to be exporting in a period when we are trying to re-stimulate economic growth in our domestic markets. So a straight challenge, I think, to the business people on this panel. We would argue that the era of cheap energy is over, and that is probably the single most important topic to talk about on climate change, and we should be concentrating on the dividends of clean energy, safer energy, and energy which we manage securely in our own domestic environments (coughs) without Putin's hand on the gas tap. Thank you. Very good. Thank you
1: very much, Jesse. So we'll wait for the Head of the Army in Desmond Tutu to turn up in Copenhagen. Now, second speaker, five minutes from Gavin Neath. Gavin is the Senior Vice President here at Unilever, so we have to be grateful for him, both for the elegant surroundings in which we are hosting this debate, but also he leads uh, Unilever's work on sustainability. So uh, why don't you give us uh, some contributions here?
3: Right. So I don't think I can add much to what Jesse has said about the prognosis for um, Copenhagen. I think the only contribution I can make to this conversation is uh, to look at the issue through the lens of one um, large multinational corporation. And I think when business talks about this subject, business talks about climate change, it it needs to do so with a a degree of humility. um, Because the reality is for the last 30-odd years, the environmental movement have been warning us about the dangers of climate change, and for the most part, business has ignored them. Um, So uh, we now find ourselves in a position where the business community is kind of scrambling. um, I think to good purpose and good effect um, but nevertheless um, very very late in the day. So even a business like this one which um, first started to um, interest itself and be very active in the area of sustainability 15 or 20 years ago um, it defined its issues as being water, agriculture and fish. And climate was not on our agenda um, I suppose until about five or six years ago. It only came on our, gen- on our agenda because we started to think much more deeply about our climate impacts. We, looked, um, uh, at our imp- we started to look at our impacts in a much broader way. Historically we'd said to ourselves Well, our impacts are just come from our network of factories around the world. It comes from our activities as a business. Um, In fact, um, that's uh, only a trivial percentage of our impacts. If you look at a business like this one um, and you look right across its value chain from the sourcing of its raw materials all the way through to the manner in which consumers use and then dispose of our products, our impacts are enormous. So, though our direct impact as a business measured from emissions from our factories, for example, would be about three million tons, our total impact across our value chain, we believe to be well more than 100 times that amount. So, a material amount. And the big impacts are very much upstream in agriculture, which a very large degree of food business, Um, More than half of our raw materials come from agriculture, so we have a big, big impact on the um, agricultural markets, the big commodity markets of the world. Um, And agriculture, as we know, is an important factor, driver of climate change, particularly when you get into things like deforestation and land use change. So we have a big um, burden at that end but perhaps um, also an equally large burden at the end of our consumers. Um, So we think, um, well a study recently done by the University of Manchester um, Institute for Sustainable Consumption has estimated that around 70% of climate impacts are directly attributable to consumer behavior. Um, So if you start thinking about that and you start thinking about how behaviour change amongst consumers in the way they use products can have a real influence on the whole debate. So uh, that forces us to consider how we design products, how we recommend people consume them, how we recommend people use them. And this takes us into a, a big new area, which is kind of pregnant with, with possibilities, with opportunities, um, and which is certainly driving a lot of management behaviour now in the business. So I think I'll stop there.
1: Very good. That was uh, less than five minutes. So you, uh, you get the thanks to the audience for allowing extra time for questions. Uh, so third on our, our bill, uh, after Gavin, uh, we have Rosie to my right, uh, who has a resume almost too long to begin, but was indep- in editor of the, uh, the Independent on Sunday, The Independent and The Express, and has been a long-term uh, environmental campaigner and campaigner on uh, women's and feminism issues. And you're going to talk this morning about food.
4: I am. Um, my current uh, job, um, after all those um, ones that you mentioned, is that I'm the Boris's, the Mayor of London's food advisor. So um, I spend most of my days being involved in... Various aspects of the food chain and starting to realize, as I have been now for some years, just what a, a vast part food, of food's production, the way it's moved, the way it's grown, plays in climate change. It's always very difficult, I think, to put accurate figures on these. They get blasted around. But, you know, roughly, I think people reckon that 40% of the world's emissions come from the food chain. And that's if you start from changed in the world after the war and we entered the Green Revolution and you started the massive import of fertilizers, um, the size of machinery, the distances that food was moved, the types of packaging that we used, then of course the disposal of the packaging, and you got this absolutely massive industry that began and also a very, very big change in diet and on top of that a feeling within the developed world of, of a huge entitlement to both cheap food and any food, whenever they wanted, regardless of the time of year or its connection to, say, seasonality. Which has meant, in a sense, that the big multinational food corporations, of which there are actually terrifyingly few, but food security is a, another issue which would take a, several hours to go into. But, I mean, for instance, the world's beef is basically owned by four companies, which I find a very scary fact. Um, they sort of looked at the world as its own back garden and thought, well, where can we go that's the cheapest and the best place to do it and to get the food from? And two of the big things that are going to come up in Copenhagen are that recompensing the poorest nations and looking after them as they start to feel the impacts of climate change, which is primarily going to be on the fact that the droughts across Central Africa are now yielding and meaning that lots of areas of land which once grew, the staples of food that people needed to eat are now... Absolutely useless uh, in terms of agricultural land. people are pouring into the cities, hoping both for jobs and for food and a crisis is occurring. Who is going to pay for that? Is it going to be the u n Is it going to be the World Bank? How much are the developed countries going to pay for in a sense the the rape over many years of these poorer countries and Of course, the other absolutely massive issue is the question of deforestation and how are we going to Again, do we have to recompense Brazil, Indonesia to say, this has got to stop? Deforestation is reckoned to cause 17% of the carbon activity that uh, is into our planet. But when you come to issues of uh, eating meat um, and the way that meat is seen, for instance, as a sign of prosperity, and you start now to look at what are the figures that actually truly scare me, um, you look at both India and China and China in particularly where the growth in dairy has gone up by 300% since 1990 and the meat consumption per annum has now doubled from 25 kilograms per head to, five po- to 53 kilograms per head. Now These actually are in comparison to America of course incredibly small sums and if you took the individual Chinese their actual carbon footprint is tiny. But you start to rub up against a very, very complicated issue, which is, well, if we've been allowed to do it, why shouldn't they? And who is someone to make a decision which says, actually, we want you to stay in a largely vegetarian world? Because China, again, very scarily, despite its actual geographical size and its massive population, only has, of its whole landmass, only 7% you are able to grow on. So China gets its food from elsewhere. Um, As people probably know, I mean, they're buying up large chunks of Africa And most of the deforestation in Brazil is for Chinese cattle and again to provide soya for Chinese food. And in fact the movement of food from Brazil to China is now reckoned to be the largest consistent movement of food from one place to another specific place that has ever happened in the history of time. And again, how do you walk up to this and say one rule for us, one rule for you? Because it comes back to a bit what you were saying, which is that it's the end of the day, you know, the consumer, you can limit what the consumer can do about plastic bags, you can limit various things like that. But how do you actually start to bring around a really big change and say, well, if, I mean, if American, if we all ate meat like Americans, we'd need five planets to do it on. We, we cannot do it. It's unsustainable. If those figures that I've just quoted, and India's are not quite as high, but they're high too, continue to rise, we again hit a completely unsustainable situation. So you're, you're coming up, as I say, against very complicated cultural um, and economic uh, issues that seem to me very difficult to legislate about. Um, they are economic, of course, because they are, in certain instances, supporting farmers, but they're also crippling to a lot of third world countries, which, I mean, I will always quote the uh, case of Colombia, for instance, when the Americans decided that the Colombians should stop growing cocaine, they made a suggestion that they should grow all the flowers in, in, um, uh, needed for America, which the Colombians took to and uh, use a lot of chemicals, uh, organophosphates, for instance, that are not permitted in the U.S. mainland. Um, so they took to flowers but of course they carried on growing coke as well and the upshot is that this is now a country which is so fertile and so wonderful is now a net importer of food that's again an unsustainable and extremely weird way to go about it so I will leave you on that since I've had a note saying uh, stop
1: (laughs) thank you very much, any meat eaters in the audience should be feeling suitably guilty at this point you don't have to feel guilty, I
5: mean just just (laughs) (laughs) stop it (laughs) our
1: penultimate speaker on the panel is John Crackett, who's the managing director uh, of Central Networks for Eon UK. To put that slightly more simply in the terms that Jesse used at the beginning, he's the man in charge with keeping the lights on, specifically 4.9 million people in the centre of England uh, depend on his company to keep their electricity running. And he's going to talk to us about the trilemma that electricity companies face and possibly
6: answer Jesse's charge that the era of cheap energy is over. James, thank you very much for that, and uh, yeah, I I work for Eon, and I can already sense people feeling in the audience bad thoughts about me. Um, (laughs) Multinational, monolithic, uncaring, remote, bureaucratic. Um, I have to tell you that I do care quite deeply about all of this. I care about energy and where it's going to come from in the future, and I care about serving the communities, the 10 million people in the Midlands particularly, who rely on me for a supply of electricity. And of course, the reason I care about this is that I'm in business. This is my business. I don't talk about it. I don't write about it. I'm accountable to, for people for actually sorting it out. And that's why I believe that we have to reduce the amount of carbon we're pushing into the atmosphere. We have to have a global uh, agreement which will restrain that. And that's why I think, you know, as far as I'm concerned, Copenhagen is plan A at the moment. Well, in energy, none of this would be any of any problem if cost weren't an issue or reliability wasn't a problem. All energy companies and arguably all policy makers in energy are trying to make a triangle of things hold together. And the triangle is that we need energy which is sustainable. We need energy which is reasonably affordable and we need energy which is reliable. Now any idiot can do two out of the three. You can have windmills, which are reasonably green and relatively cheap, but the wind doesn't blow all the time. You can burn coal without capturing the carbon, and that's cheap and that's reliable, but in the end will wreck the planet. So the challenge is, how do you get all three things together? And bad news, really, there isn't a silver bullet answer to this. What we need to get to where I feel we we need to get to in the long term, which is a a carbon-based economy where we can reduce our requirement for energy to a point where it can be met by low-carbon or renewable sources, what we're going to need to get there is a balance and a mixture of all technologies. And there are a couple of interesting corollaries out of this as well. Despite energy saving, the amount of electricity that's going to be generated and used in this transition is actually going to go up. The reason for that, of course, is that a lot of the renewable sources will generate electricity and therefore that will be what's used to power them. And as we move to different forms of heating, uh, ground source heat pumps and so on, that will be electrically based. And we are in serious danger, having talked about it for more than 50 years, of seeing viable electric vehicles, all leading to electricity. How much? Well, if we achieve something like an 80% reduction in carbon by 2050, some commentators suggest 50 to 60% more electricity being used. And the other thing is, if we're going to execute a change, it's going to require money. Massive change for infrastructure, lots of money will have to be invested. Ofgem themselves uh, estimate over 250 billion over the next 15 years. That's, a business case is going to have to be found for that, people are going to invest, have to invest for it, and somebody is going to have to pay for it. And we need to be honest about that to today's and tomorrow's customers of electricity. EON's doing its bit, as you would expect. We're building uh, with partners not too far from here what will be the world's largest offshore wind farm. It'll provide enough power for a quarter of London on its, on its own. We're one of two companies competing to demonstrate uh, clean coal, carbon capture and storage technology. And we are with partners seeking to build six gigawatts of nuclear power stations. But I think individuals have a part to play here as well, understanding the challenge and also taking responsibility for their actions. Now I know not everybody likes to see a wind farm out of their bedroom window, but really these things have got to be built somewhere. Nuclear power, are we going to be able to convince people that it is adequately safe? And maybe in the UK we have the luxury of saying no to coal. But are we really saying that the global consequences of Chinese and Indian unabated coal consumption can go unchecked? These are difficult things for individuals. I appreciate that. It's hard to see what you can do. You keep switching the lights on and they keep going on and you're tempted to think it's somebody else's problem. Um, And, of course, it's... um, it's difficult yet to see any patent effect of global warming in your lives, although if I were in Cumbria I wouldn't be so sure. So what's the climate that we need for climate change? I think we need policymakers to take bold steps to secure international agreement on carbon reduction. I think we need individuals to understand the challenge and take personal responsibility. And businesses, well, enabled and entrusted by those other two groups, businesses need to do what they do best, which is stepping up to the plate and delivering these solutions, the right solutions, and delivering them quickly.
1: Thank you very much. John? Okay, so our final speaker on the panel, before we throw it open for questions, is uh, Professor Graciela Cicilnuski, to my left. She's the author of the published, or soon to be published, is it out yet? Just by Just out, Saving Kyoto. Um, not only that, she was the, uh, the author of the carbon markets agreement written into the Kyoto Treaty um, and therefore has some claim to be the author also of the EU's carbon market which trades over 120 billion euros in, uh, in, in carbon permits, So quite impressive. She is also a professor at Columbia University um, and uh, a leading light in the field of the economics of sustainable development and perhaps more impressively for this audience She's only in London for one day, having flown in uh, last night. So we're very grateful to her for being here. And so your five minutes starts now.
7: Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, My job is made easier by the excellent presentations here. Very impressed. Uh, I have to say I agree with all of you, which is a bit uh, perplexing. So... let me tell you, I have my eyes fixed on the ball. So while I'm here today, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity, I am fixed on Copenhagen. That starts in a few days, December 7th. And let me tell you about that then. Nobody spoke about what's going to happen and what can happen, what should happen. This morning, we had a new uh, piece of the puzzle coming to life when the Times.com published a, uh, online a, uh, a new statement by Pachari, the uh, chief of the IPCC, where I was a lead author for many years, explaining the need for what we just heard about, namely carbon capture. He comes from the perspective that nothing that we're doing, including the emission reductions that, President Obama of the United States recently uh, agreed had to be done, although the number is questionable. Nothing that we're doing with respect to emissions is going to work, and we had to get up up close and personal with those molecules and suck them out of the air, which is what was mentioned as carbon capture and some of the projects that have been going around to make clean power plants uh, possible. To produce electricity. 41% of the world uh, emissions come from power plants. The whole energy conflict with environment is there. Energy is development. Energy is the man- mother of all markets. By creating the carbon market, and the carbon trading, which is now $120 billion, each one of those dollars has been paid by an over-emitter. Watch. Each one of those dollars went to an under-emitter. This means profits. We're not focusing on that. You actually mentioned it, but in passing. The carbon market has the potential for once we choose sufficiently low emission targets, deal with the problem of global warming, without any net cost to the world economy because somebody, an over-emitter pays but somebody who is an under-emitter gets more profitable. Therefore we just have to get those emission levels down and now we go directly against in Copenhagen against the conflict that has been there from the very beginning which is the conflict between the rich and the poor nations 80% 80% of humankind, that is emitting only 40% of the emissions, 20% that we represent here, and I represent because I'm now a U.S. citizen, having been born in Argentina, uh, are emitting the overwhelming majority of the emissions. So this has been a conflict since the beginning, and it has to be resolved. To Copenhagen, I'm going to bring two proposals, and they are now becoming official um, Elements that are going to be sitting on the table brought by the negotiators. So, while I look at you and I see how important it is what you have to say, and I, I'm uh, impressed with the things you are saying and the importance of moving forward along the lines that you all described, we got to make a deal in Copenhagen, okay? And the situation is actually good. The OECD with the 2020-20 means 20% reductions by 2020 below the 1990 levels, compares, unfortunately, with only a 3% in net terms that the U.S. is proposing, because the 17% is based on 2005 targets. So we do seem to have now an agreement among the wealthy nations on limiting emissions. Problem is, we procrastinated too long. So now, limiting emissions doesn't suffice. And 2 degrees doesn't suffice either. But Chauri said today, I suggest you read it, uh, we need 1.5. 1.5 maximum in terms of increase. I, I can explain why, but the picture in Prospect magazine actually presents the, the idea. And the picture is a polar bear. And what you need to know is that in the poles, the temperature changes are, swings are three times larger than on average. So, and that's where most of the ice in the planet is, that when it uh, melts, increases the risk of the size, increases the, uh, the, the, uh, the sea level rise. So, 25% of the votes at the United Nations, and 25% of the votes in Copenhagen are in the hands of the small island nations who are going to sink under the warming seas. Together with them and with one of their negotiators, Kevin Conrad of Papua New Guinea, we're bringing one of the proposals I'm going to tell you right now, which is to resolve the impasse between China and the United States. That's a diplomatic impasse. That's a minor extension, a modest extension of the carbon market To allow both China and the U.S. to simultaneously agree on reducing emissions, they are the two largest emitters in the world economy. And between the two of them, they can cause catastrophic risk to the world economy. So that's the first proposal. The words words are already crafted. And the European Union Commissioner, Dimas, from Greece, yesterday told me he's going to be supporting this, and so will the uh, Greek negotiator, Dimitris Lalas, together with 25% of the vote who are the uh, small island states. A Chinese official has already agreed to that, officially, on the record, in April 2009 at the United Nations meeting. So this may all sound very technical to you, but either we, saw, we found the solution to the problem between the China and the United States, or this is like a Cold War, all about warming developing in front of our eyes. But the second point, going above the exceedingly important diplomatic uh, impasse that we have to resolve, because this is one world, as it was pointed out, we're all in it together, there is nowhere to hide, we need the 80% of humankind to be with us, not against us, okay? There is the technological issue. So what if we have a diplomatic agreement, and we all agree with 1.5% reduction, as Pachauri wants, from the IPCC, and we have a solution of the China-U.S. impasse? For as long as we don't actually do what we need to do in physical terms, the climate change could continue unrelented and sink us all. And I say could. I have one minute. I say could because nobody can be sure that global warming is going to develop the way we think. Nobody. Anybody who told you otherwise would not be saying the truth. I'm a scientist. But the risk is real and potentially catastrophic. We need the third generation carbon capture technology, which is carbon negative. This technology has the ability to build power plants that suck carbon from air. This can be the way to mobilize the carbon market resources, the $120 billion plus the $25 billion that were already invested in industrial nations' clean technologies, and bring a resolution between the North and the South. These carbon plants can also channel funds to Africa and Latin America, which has not been possible until now because they emit so little. All of Africa emits 3%. All of Latin America emits 5%. It's nothing. So the resources have not gone there. They have gone to China somewhat perversely. To channel that, we need them to be able to use technology that suck more carbon than they emit, so that Africa can reduce 20% of the global emissions even though it emits 3%. Is that possible? Yes. These carbon-negative technologies are a third or fourth generation of the carbon capture Uh, mechanisms that were just discussed and which Pachauri advocates and with this we can actually bring the whole world together a show of unity and mobilize the profit and the profit-making energy industry that we just heard about into doing what they do best which is channel those funds to change the 50 trillion dollar Energy industry worldwide and to bring unity of the, to the world economy while in the process of resolving this untractable issue of climate change.
1: Thank you very much. Okay, so we're now just about on track. It's quarter past nine, so we've got about half an hour for debates and questions. Uh, Graciela uh, frightened the life out of me just at the beginning there by saying she agreed with everyone, so um, it's now my job to try and sow discord between the panel, and I hope you'll help me in doing that, given that. Underneath this seeming show of agreement, there lie bitter divisions which need to be uh, teased out in order to move our understanding forward. Let me just begin, before you begin with your questions, if anyone wants to catch my eye, by asking all of the panel a a quick and basic 30-second question, which is, is Copenhagen going to succeed? Jesse?
2: Unfortunately, I don't think it will this December. I think we will get an agreement which gives us a basis for success over the next six months or so. I think there's a long, long way to go.
1: And why won't it succeed? Mm? Why not?
2: I don't think we are anywhere near the level of commitment necessary from the US to build the kind of trust that will mean that the G77 will put on the table what we need from them.
6: John? I'm an optimist, um, and I'm hoping that it will succeed sufficiently to take us forward. It, it won't result in the kind of comprehensive, legally binding agreement that we, we once had an ambition for, but I'm hoping it will go sufficiently far to, uh, to get us on the way.
1: President, you sort of answered this already, but maybe you answer it again. Will it work?
7: I actually agree with both of them. <laughs> <But doesn't, laughs> this
1: is terrible.
7: Doesn't mean they agree with me.
1: Ah, well, okay. okay so, you
7: can hit on me. Uh, yeah, Copenhagen, listen, there is now more agreement than ever from the United States, although it's pitiful, the 3% uh, that has been offered by President Obama. But President Obama has to find a way very soon to pass the energy bill that was passed through the House of Representatives through the Senate. And he needs something from Copenhagen to do that. He needs a movement with China. Once that bill passes, the US will have adopted a mini version of the Kyoto Protocol at home. And then the two will converge. So what he has said is absolutely right. Copenhagen is not the solution. And you can be pessimistic in that sense. But you can also be optimistic in the sense that it will lay the groundwork as it happened in Kyoto and then with an agreement in principle on the direction we're going to go Copenhagen will set up the path for concrete steps that will be worked out in the next year. It depends on all of us to put those steps in place and thus I'm doing my job by putting these proposals into specific wording into the LCA, the Kyoto Protocol Tracker He gets very technical.
4: Very good. Rosie, is it going to work? Well, I think people have basically said, is the cup half full or the cup half empty? Because everyone said roughly the same thing, which is that we're not going to get it in the next few weeks, but that we will get something within the next year and that this is going to lay the framework. And that's what I'm thinking that where it will be. So it entirely depends on whether you're an optimistic or a pessimistic person in the way you describe it.
1: Okay. (laughs) And finally, what do you think? Um, I'm not the best
3: qualified to opine on this, but... um, uh, (laughs) My view is that we'll certainly get a political framework um, with which um, uh, we can work, because my li- limited understanding is that a number of the big issues that have to be decided have already, in one way or another, been decided. So the, the big developed countries have to make commitments to targets. The European Union have. Japan has. Um, uh, America has. Um, that's uh, there's a tick in the box there. The developing nations have to uh, make commitments to reduce their carbon intensity, again, the big countries have, Brazil has, China has, Indonesia has. The issue now is about money um, and politicians are are better at money than they are at some of these other things. So I would have thought there's a fair chance of something happening.
1: Very good. So in the absence of uh, Desmond Tutu, then that's sort of, as you say, half full, half empty. Now, um, on questions. Uh, There's a technological issue and a a temperamental issue. The technological issue is in order to ask a question, you have to press the button next to you so that your microphone works. So this is all very high tech. The temperamental issue is that I I would prefer questions to the panel, but if you really do want to make a statement, if you go on longer than about 45 seconds, then I'll cut you off. Uh, The first one is over here. And can you please say who you are?
4: Obviously very important, I think, as Jesse said, to reframe in a way the way that we're doing politics at that international level. But I also wonder if it's also important to reframe politics at a domestic level. So the question to the panel um, very much is, given that we've just had the financial crisis and the limited way in which government uses economic policy analysis to direct the way that we conduct most policy, how do you think next year or, or now the manifestos of the parties really need to address, let's say, industrial policy to tackle this issue, which is different from before, in a way maybe to introduce a bit of tutu magic to bring a little bit more coordination and governance and decision-making that actually enables this to happen?
1: That's a fantastic question to start us off with. Let me just take a couple more and then we'll answer them in, 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 a, in a round. Again, say who you are, please.
6: Thank you. I'm Stephen Tindall. I'm a climate and energy consultant. Unfortunately, uh, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with anything that the panel said, um, several of you said you can have or you implied you can have clean energy, you can have cheap energy but you can't yet have both and therefore it seems to me the fuel poverty debate in the UK is going to be politically the main issue because our buildings are so rubbish frankly. Um, and since uh, David Cameron was at the Treasury last time the Conservative, last Conservative government introduced VAT on domestic fuel, uh, fuel poverty is certainly going to be politically difficult. Um, so what do you think a UK government could and should do about that?
1: And I saw so one further question here again. Press your button.
6: Uh, Claire Fox, Institute
8: of Ideas. Um, maybe I can um, introduce some dissent. Um, James, you started off um, mentioning ClimateGate and the uh, obscure professors, but in fact they're not obscure professors, are they? Um, they are, in fact, very important scientists who have informed a lot of the world's understanding of the evidence around climate uh, change and I just wondered if the panel could talk about the fact that that there is now um, potentially some dissenting voices. I raise that really because one of the things that lies behind uh, the climate gate emails is really about the lack of debate. Now I'm quite sceptical of the orthodoxy on climate change. Obviously that has allowed people to call me a denier, all sorts of things. I actually think there is man-made uh, global warming as it happens, but you can't enter this discussion sceptically without somebody either calling you a denier or saying that you're working for big oil or, in, you know, at various times that I've worked for Bush, I've got vested interests. And the Institute of Ideas tries to create public debate, but when we try and have a public debate on this, people say, you can't say that in relation to this de- subject, and I think that there is a danger, not I don't mean in relation to this panel particularly, but there is a danger that that has led to cynicism amongst the public because it's become a closed discussion amongst a kind of group of people who all agree. And even, James, when you started off saying, how can we get consumers to change their behaviour, that's one debate. How can we get the government to bring in regulations, that's another debate. They're not debates. <laughs> They're policy outcomes. They bear no relation to science and evidence. And yet, somehow, whenever you have a discussion on this issue, everybody says, well, I broadly agree. I don't think that's healthy for democracy, let alone the fact that I think it's discrediting science that it's used in that policy-prescriptive way.
1: Okay. Also, three good issues to to kick us off with there. Uh, I I, I admit to... Policy wonkery being a weakness of mine, so I apologise for that from the chair's point of view. So we had Andrea's question on what should be in the manifestos, Stephen's on the particular issue of our rubbish buildings and what to do about fuel poverty as a domestic issue, and then climate gate in general and whether dissent should be allowed or uh, or encouraged. And so, who'd like to come back on that? Maybe Jesse, I look to you first. Yep. Maybe p- pick um, off one or two of these only.
2: I'll pick off your question and then the question on manifestos. What I should have said in answer to your question about Copenhagen is the real risk is that we get an outcome which our leaders declare is a success, which actually isn't. The real risk is greenwash, is that they stand there in Copenhagen and they say they have solved the problem, and our newspapers tell us the problem is solved, and we all walk away and assume it was easy. The problem is not solved. Ten years later, the politics of turning around and saying, we got it wrong, we lied to you, is going to make solving problems which by then will be deeper and more serious, almost impossibly difficult. That's what I'm actually frightened of at Copenhagen. On domestic politics and manifestos, um, what I'd actually like to see is something that's probably heretical in most political parties in Britain, but is not in the boardrooms of, in particular, the energy companies. And I take John's point that this is really about electricity. In Whitehall, it's heretical to say that the market is not necessarily going to deliver the solutions. Most of the boardrooms would agree that markets are very successful at exploring options. That's their great strength. But they're not proven to be successful at getting us to a certain place by a certain time. That's 2 degrees, or if it's now going to be publicly 1.5 degrees, all the better. But getting us to a destination. I don't think the issue around our ability to tackle the problems of climate change is really technology. We have the engineering. The question is scale and time frame for deploying that engineering. And the real problem there, and this is certainly the case in the EU, it's certainly the case in Britain, it's a clear problem with the cap-and-trade system at the moment, is certainty of investments for the major companies who will need to be spending the money that will build the real things that will drive the real change without certainty about what the energy mix will be, I don't understand how a company like E.ON could make decisions from its pipeline about what to invest in and what not. That puts them in a dilemma. Their business model is the managing of uncertainty in the energy mix. But on the other hand, they need more certainty in order to be able to make any investments. I'm in a strange position at the moment in the EU context of constantly going in to see the EU institutions who say... We've done a package. We've done 2020. We've done 20%. By 2020, we've solved the problem. We'd like to sit back for 10 years and see what delivers. And going in with a platform of everything from the most radical street-level environmental NGOs to the oil companies, right through the whole spectrum of the energy sector, and saying, none of us agree with you. And we all think that the key investments cannot take place and finding that it's very, very difficult for us to get traction with the policymakers on that. We won't answer the question about full poverty, but it's a great one.
1: Let me ask ask John if you want to follow on. What what, what would you like in the manifestos? Um, You also have to deal with fuel poverty, I suppose. Yeah,
6: let me pick up that and just follow on from the the, uh, the, the business point there. Why is it, do you think, that one of Europe's largest polluters is sitting here and begging to be capped? and begging to be restricted on the pollution that he is emitting into the atmosphere. The reason is, of course, it's all about the future. It's not about today and what we're doing today with with Ratcliffe and Kings North and all those other power stations that will close in the next few years. The issue that we are grappling with as a company is the future and we want to know our businesses in long-term investment in things in the future. Power stations, Smart grids, networks, transformers, which will last for 30, 40, 50, even even longer than that. So what we need is sufficient degree of certainty to, to attract the investment and uh, invest in that. Now we don't want we don't mind. You know, I don't mind whether it's wind farms or nuclear power stations or even coal-fired power stations, if you like. We just need the framework and the certainty to be able to attract that investment, because without it. Firstly, on a UK level, that investment will go somewhere else in Europe, where they do give that certainty, and globally, of course, if it doesn't get invested quickly in these, uh, in, in these kind of new technologies, then the effects that we're talking about will not, be, will not be achieved. So it's all about investment, absolutely agree. On the fuel poverty, um, I have a bit of a radical view on fuel poverty, uh, which is there isn't any such thing. Um, there's just poverty, really. People who are fuel poor are poor. Um, that's the problem. That's a society problem, um, and our quest to address this by constantly dividing it down into little specialist areas is is not going to be successful. You don't go into Tesco's and find the food poor range of baked beans. I don't. I don't find people. <laughs> I don't find you know Shell rushing round to my house to check that my my tyres are fully inflated. So I use their product responsibly. Having said that, of course, I, do, I am interested deeply in that section of our customers who find it very difficult to heat and light their homes. And that's what I'm interested in, not the price they pay for the energy, whether they can heat or light their homes adequately. And you hit the nail right on the head, which is this is all about the housing stock. We have the most appalling housing stock in the UK, and the people who are poorest live in the worst housing stock, and they are unable to do anything about it. And I suppose if I if I was, you know, at Gordon's right hand, radical option, I'd I'd cancel the Olympics and I'd take the umpteen billion that we're gonna spend on that and I'd you know where I'd put that? I'd put that straight into housing associations and local authorities into drastically improving the social housing stock. Because to me that's the centre of gravity and it's in social housing that you could have an impact most quickly, because you don't have to go around convincing homeowners one at a time to do it. You can do it for a whole housing association or something. Yeah, but let, you know, let's start with, the, let's start with the, the low-hanging fruit, as it were, and make some really big impacts, mm-hmm. both, both on the climate, uh, both on people's poverty, and on the quality of their lives and health. Very good. I detected
1: some dissent here. If we, maybe you could pass on the idea of cancelling the Olympics to Boris as well. Uh, okay. That? Yes. All well, right.
4: That's. So I can see. i, I uh, I'd say that that, that to is happen. not
6: official Eon policy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd
7: be quite quite, be quite a good, quite a good story if it was official
4: Eon <laughs> policy. No, but you're wrong about the food thing. I mean, in, in a, a, a well-off household, you spend roughly 6% on food, and in a household that's in poverty, you're spending 26% on food. And so I agree with you entirely that food pov- poverty is about poverty, period. Yeah. And, but it extends across everything. And if I was writing the manifestos, I would want to see much heavier grants going into the retrofitting of houses, which is still something that is postponed. I mean, such a lot of the problems to do with climate change are also the problems to do with the politics that we live in, which are people are short-termist, and I was listening to someone from the UN saying, even the UN is, uh, in a way, an incapable institution of dealing with this because we deal in four or five-year chunks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everything is always deferred to after the next election. And you can see what Obama is working, w- walking up to in terms of the car in America. I mean, if you actually start to say you take the car out of America, the whole place does fall apart. And so the decisions are very much harder. But there are a lot of things we could do here to do with, I think, localization, um, communities, um, putting power back into communities, encouraging communities to generate their own power, which are not only good psychologically for people because they bond them together, and they start to make them uh, feel that they're capable and have some control over their lives, which we've all lost, but you also start to cut your emissions um, the moment you do that. And there are huge numbers of laws, even a very small one to do with um, putting in a, a water mill. If you want to put in a water mill in Britain, you have to go through about 18 different stages. If you want to put it in in Germany, you go to the bank, with uh, a proposal, and uh, they give you the loan, you buy the watermill, and you pay it off on, on a 20-year thing. And in Britain, it's a nightmare. I mean, there's just so many very easy things that would encourage that kind of culture and that way of thinking. Do you have any thoughts on Clare's point?
1: Climate, oh, climate Claire's gauge. point.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, people... I, I was actually at the Tory party conference, and I overheard two guys saying to each other, um, we're really looking forward to this, because it's going to mean that our hotel in Yorkshire, we'll have a swimming pool, and we'll have sun lounges, and it's going to be fantastic and we'll be growing grapes. and that there is this sort of sense that I think that it's a there's it's very flip but there's you know one level it's not actually happening very much around us um, people I think are scared so they're therefore trying to deny it and trying to drum that up um, don't forget the research that George Monbiot did when he looked into the numbers of the think tanks that were actually supported by by the fuel companies to produce bogus science um, the real scientists say um, exactly, you, know, you cannot predict everything, but you can certainly predict a very, very, very high scale of risk. So um, to the deniers, I say, pull your head out of the sand.
1: And very briefly, uh, just... I mean, I mean, I know you're, you're saying
4: know. We, we're not allowed to debate it. Um, I, d- I don't think that's entirely I mean, so true. The distortion
8: of the science in the newspapers over the last few days is actually not from oil companies, it's from climate scientists. Who was
4: that. supporting them? Because that was what was happening before that it was coming from, quote, climate scientists who were actually being funded by oil companies.
7: (laughs) The deniers are not wrong. There is uh, anybody who told you, as I said before, that we are sure that climate change is happening would be lying. The science is very new. The models are very complex. And they are complex in the sense of being chaotic, which means they are unpredictable, the climate models. What we are saying is the following. Do you know if your house is going to go on fire tomorrow? No. Do you know if you bind your eyes and close the street, will you be killed? No. Is there a good chance that you will be killed? Yes. Is there a reasonable chance that your house may go on fire? Yes. All you need to take action is to have a reasonable chance of a potentially catastrophic event. Not to be sure. That's why you buy insurance today. And that's why the, the uh, global insurance market charges 2.5 of the value of an asset to insure catastrophic risks right now today. That's what I uh, document in my book in Saving Kyoto. I have a whole chapter about this. We're really talking about a risk. We're not talking about certainty. So the deniers are not wrong. It's just that we have to understand that there is a substantive risk of a catastrophic event, and as in the case of your house going on fire, you have to take action, and you do. And there is no reason to take this any differently than any other catastrophic risk that the world economy is ensuring right now for much higher expenses than we're willing to put here.
1: Great. Let's, um, let's try and get a few more. We've only really got ten minutes to go before we need to wrap up, so let's see if we can get as many points as possible. And again, do say who you are and press your little button.
5: <laughs> Certainly, James. Uh, I, my name's Isabel Hilton, and I run China Dialogue, uh, which discusses these things with China. Um, I, I, I wanted actually to follow up with Jesse on the question of... Uh, on James's it's question as to whether Copenhagen point. would be a success or not, would succeed. These things are always defined... Uh, either as a success or a great success. Uh, And my view of Copenhagen is that it, at best, is likely to be a success. And there are many different ways in which this could go wrong. And it could be a complete car crash. We could have a deal that's not worth having, which turns into a kind of zombie like the Doha round. Um, On the question of at what point and what elements... With what elements should we judge whether a deal is worth having? I'd, I'd be very interested in, in your thoughts because one can very well see uh, the possibility of a deal that not only doesn't solve the problem but actually inhibits other actions that might contribute to a solution of the problem. And, and you know, that is a mm-hmm. fairly key judgment to be able to make in, in deciding whether Copenhagen has worked.
1: Let me, uh, let's get a few more thoughts as well. I see one person there.
7: Uh, David Lowish from
2: Generation Investment Management. I, I'm curious as to this consensus that the, the era of cheap energy is, is over. Um, you know, We seem to have been there before in the 1970s um, when people said it's, it's all over, there's no more oil left, and then we, we found a whole lot more. Um, if we look at energy prices
4: today, they're actually way too low to make it worthwhile. Uh, people like E.ON investing in new generation capacity – let alone uh, investing in in second
3: or
2: third generation carbon capture plants? And isn't the risk, perhaps, that we actually end up finding a whole load more hydrocarbons uh, at at much more accessible prices, if I think about shale gas in North America and perhaps even um, elsewhere in the world?
3: Um, How does the panel think about that, and, and what impact does that have on... On, um,
7: I on climate policy mm-hmm.
5: sure,
1: well, just, let, me, let me just take a few more sure. before we, we come back so one there and then one we we'll, haven't had on from there
5: Hi, um, Jeremy Douglas from BBC World Service Trust um, there's a lot of talk about uh, putting caps and cutting carbon emissions um, and alternative energy but I'm just wondering for the people who are already feeling the effects of climate change in developing countries what's being done for them for, for um, climate refugees and so on
1: Okay, that's a great question. And then one final one over there.
9: Yes, we, we've spoken a lot about energy. And Sorry, of of you that's say, say who you are? I'm um, Tristram Stewart, author of Waste, Uncovering the Global Food Scandal. Um, so I was wanting to pick up on the, the mention of deforestation and specifically on, on RED, the efforts to reduce deforestation, uh, to reduce the, the contribution of about 20% of all greenhouse gas emissions that comes there from. Uh, so I wonder wh- whether the panellists can give their view on whether we're going to have a successful red agreement at Copenhagen, how it's going to be funded, and whether the price on forests is going to be sufficient to discourage people from chopping them down. And of course, as Rosie so eloquently put, that relates to uh, food production, and specifically the production of of meat and dairy products and soya, which all uh, amounts to more or less the same thing. And one thing I wanted to raise is in, rather than just tackling it through consumption of meat and dairy products, the production and the methods of production are, of course, vital too. Uh, Rosie mentioned India and China as interesting case studies. Of course, India has had a massive increase in dairy production, but if you look at its methods of production, which is to use byproducts and waste as its feedstock for livestock, its inputs into its livestock sector are much, much smaller as a proportion of the output as compared to anything in Europe or in China for that matter. And therefore, the use of, of wastes and the recycling of waste products, which of course is illegal in Europe, is, is a key way of, of reducing emissions. And I wonder if, if anyone has any ideas of how climate and the debate about climate can be used to dictate methods of food production and specifically meat and dairy.
1: Okay, so four questions. What would, what would success mean at Copenhagen? Would it be a disaster if we found more cheap energy? What about refugees and uh, what about deforestation? Now, we missed you last time. Do you want to come back on any of these?
3: Um, happy to talk about forests, yeah. You. Um, so you'll know as well as I do that we every year we lose, I think it's about an area the size of Greece in terms of tropical rainforests. Um, it's terrifying. And yet it ought to be the one issue we can address. What drives that, um, what drives deforestation, big agriculture drives it and poverty drives it essentially. Um, Sitting from where I sit, there's not much I can do about poverty, um, uh, but we can do things about about big agriculture. Um, uh, But it's formidably difficult. Um, So um, there has been some progress in the Amazon. um, uh, I think largely um, thanks to efforts um, made by by Greenpeace and the Brazilian government, um, there have been agreements made between the the four big cattle ranchers there. If you take an area where we're much more embroiled in, which is that of palm oil cultivation, it's uh, an order of magnitude more difficult um, because any kind of payment system that you imagine, whether it's REDD or other, Um, is just very difficult to work through in practice. If you think of the systems of public administration that exist in places like Papua New Guinea, Kalimantan, Sumatra, Borneo, uh, you know, the likelihood that this money is going to end up in somebody's pocket um, is very high at the moment, so um, whilst I think there is, um, you know, red conceptually ought to be the thing that we're going after hardest and with the greatest urgency, um, the practical problems of making that work on the ground are just formidably difficult.
4: Um, Rosie, do you want to come in on, on that one as well? Yeah, well, well I, mean, I, w- I would agree with that. Um, but, but I do think you're, you're quite right about India, yes, I mean they do know how to use and recycle waste and the fact that we don't do it yet to like sort of a stopped after foot and mouth and our waste goes to landfill rather than back into animal stock is, animal feeders. Absurd, But I think the, I mean, one of the things we haven't spoken about today is the issue of refugees and certainly, I mean, just a 15, I think 15 centimeter rise in sea level will put 150,000 Indian farmers, uh, will just vanish and what's happening in the Maldives and what's happening with these countries. And the answer is that I don't think actually anyone's got a clue. I always remember many years ago when I first met James Ludlock and he was saying that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the thing that he feared almost the most was the catastrophic, Movement of people who had been displaced, yeah. and where would they go to, and how would they deal with it? And I think it's uh, oddly one of the issues that's rather dropped off the climate change ag- agenda lately, and people don't talk about it because actually it is a seriously frightening thing. It's, well, I'm not saying I'm sitting here with an answer. I mean, the Maldives is a tiny country, and we don't even they don't even know where they might go. Let alone when you start to look at sea level rise in the whole of Bangladesh and those other areas that are very vulnerable. So it's something that is. Uh, if the scenarios work out badly, is going to be facing us. I mean, I'd be very interested to know what you feel about that and think about that.
7: I agree. Uh, There is a projection of 50 million uh, dollars, sorry, 50 million
4: people, uh,
7: refugees, climate refugees next year, at the end of next year, and the projection is 200 million by 2012.
4: that's almost tomorrow, I mean.
7: and if think of it this way, I mean imagine if the creation, in, uh, the Maldives are buying land in India to yeah. move their people. So think of the creation of Israel and what it means to the world economy in terms of st- instability. We are talking about 43 of those because there are 43 island states. But the point that was made, you know, the price of petroleum keeps on falling, is because of poverty. The exports of resources from developing nations is all driven by poverty and the overuse of resources is driven by poverty. And as pointed out by Jesse, the serious risk in Copenhagen is the greenwash. She's absolutely right. You might have noticed that the targets are all twenty twenty, when none of the current leaders will be in power. Exactly.
4: That's the and then
7: the next targets are twenty fifty. Yeah. And what happened and they'll to They'll be the... dead. Yeah. What happened to the targets of 20, of two thousand twelve? They were all exceeded the you know things went the other way around, so the greenwash is a real, real problem. Now I am in favor of conversions and diplomatic agreements, but we had to be sure so far, we are doing nothing to avert the world's catastrophic risks. In fact, we're doing nothing about it
1: hmm. so you, Vivi, uh, Jesse. that was Bill, Isabel's question about what we should be looking for.
2: Okay, so what is, what is not GreenWash? What are the criteria of success? We need sufficiently strong commitments from the US to motivate China to offer a commitment which is below its business-as-usual emissions growth. And there are lots and lots of debates about what the numbers are. But in order to get the commitments on emissions, we also need two other pieces. First is finance. So the World Bank estimates that developing countries will need about $320 billion by 2020 in order to adapt to climate change, in order to build the mitigation technologies that they will need to install, in order to move into a low-carbon development pathway. Because they still have the right to rise out of poverty. Gordon Brown has said about $100 of that should come from developed countries. That one is not yet on the table. And technology. We need agreements around the transfers of technology to the developing countries which need them. I don't think that actually needs adjustments to the TRIPS agreements. I don't think it actually needs any of the things which have been put on the table by some of the more radical claims. But it does need mechanisms and models for how we are going to, in practice, on the ground, move beyond the paper agreements and actually start Building new and different things. So one of the great dilemmas when you talk about finance and technology is huge sums can, under some circumstances, look at some of the history of development aid, be poured into countries and achieve remarkably little. On the other hand, remarkably small sums in field carbon capture and storage, about 10 billion euros, but EU money, which is peanuts, absolute tiddlywinks, can make an enormous difference by being invested in the right projects at the right moment to make a step change in what's happening. But I don't think we have those models yet. So what I've actually to come out of Copenhagen is some clarity on some of that. And the best discussions so far have taken place in the major economies forum around global technology action plans. That's really what I'm focused on. Quick word on cheap energy. The issue is, as you indicate, investment. If we are not going to be burning fossil fuels, and there is plentiful, oil here is not really the issue, it's coal, plentiful and cheap. Either we're going to be using a lot of CCS, and CCS is very expensive, there isn't yet a full-scale industrial demonstration on a power plant using CCS yet anywhere in the world, and CCS in its current technological form generates no revenue stream, so there is no motivation to do it other than climate regulation, Later stages of CCS might generate um, revenue um, streams. by actually becoming carbon neutral. neutral. If we are to make those investments, that's why cheap energy is over. Because the money is going to have to come somewhere, and we're back to consumers and taxpayers. We pay one way or the
1: other. We're running slightly up against time here, so I'll give you the last word. If you do want to know about uh, carbon capture and storage in the world's best uh, best trial so far. There's an excellent essay about it in that edition of <laughs> <laughs> Magazine. Excellent. Final word to you and then I'll, I'll wrap up and say thanks to everyone. I'll I, let you I was go just saying,
6: thing. almost Jesse has made my, my point for me. It's not about the availability of hydrocarbons. I mean, there is this peak oil theory and the question, you know, oil becomes so expensive you, you won't be able to use it and so on. That is no longer the point. The point now is the emission of carbon to the atmosphere and we won't be able to, however much we find, we won't be able to burn it because we, we will decide not to in some way. But the problem at the moment is, so not the availability of the hydrocarbons, but the carbon price. And if we could achieve a high carbon price, then that would automatically remunerate all this technology that we're talking about.
7: asking for an enlarged carbon market. You can hear it from industry and from the worst emitters. This is what the carbon market achieves. It is a higher carbon price, and that changes everything every the production of every good and service and the behavior of the consumers. We need a stronger carbon market with deep reductions of, on limits. This is what 's going to make it
1: okay well that 's a good 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 point to end it on um, i 'll just thank all of the the panelists and the sponsors. I would say that one issue we didn 't raise uh, Uh, In the debate is geoengineering, one of the technical potential fixes. And if you want, if you want, okay, we did raise it once. If you want to learn more about that, it'll be on the front cover of Prospect magazine next month. Uh, Beyond that, I'd just like to thank everyone for coming,
0: and all of our panelists this morning, and uh, wish you a very good day. So thank you very much. Mm